Today, we'll talk about the power of a long-term personal photo project on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all the stories and challenges that happen in between. And I've got a great guest today that I actually found out about through Don Komarechka's Photo Geek Weekly podcast a couple of months ago, and I'm really excited to get him on today. We'll, we'll get into Andy here in just a second. A couple of house cleaning things for those of you that are uh, uh, listening on the audio or the, the video, you'll see it as well. But we have a new Flickr group. So if you're a Flickr user, head on over to Flickr, find the Behind the Shot group, join the Behind the Shot group. The plan is that I will use that group down the road for some things that that we end up doing on the show. I don't want to spoil it or, you know, share where we're going yet in case I change my mind. <laughs> but that's the plan, at least. Also, I want to say congratulations. I did a contest when Trey Ratcliffe was on where you had the opportunity to win a six-week online course on how to build real influencer, uh, real influence and become an in Instagram influencer. We've got a winner. That winner is Ken Lee. So, Ken, congratulations to you. Enjoy the class. And if you didn't win... It's actually a pretty inexpensive class, and it's put on by Lauren Bath and Trey, and it's six weeks long, and for 99 bucks, I gotta say it's actually a, a pretty amazing deal. So you might wanna head and look that up yourself. The links are all in the show notes for Trey's episode. Next up, Red River Paper. I've got a contest going with Red River Paper where you have an opportunity to win one of 10 Red River Paper sample packs, and one of those winners is actually gonna win a custom 13 by 19 print of Cheney Orr's photo from the July 4th episode. It's really easy to enter. All that you need to do is go find that episode on behindtheshot.tv. All the rules are in there. There's also an entire contest menu where it will give you the rules, but basically you're gonna follow Red River Paper, you're gonna follow Behind the Shot, and then you're gonna comment on the post, either on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, for that Cheney Orr episode. So make sure you comment on the original post and tag two of your friends. That's pretty much it. So good luck at that. That one runs through the end of August. And that brings us to the guest today. So here's the deal. I'm doing a, an episode with Don Komarechka of his Photo Geek Weekly podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, let alone be on. And what Don does is he sends his guests three or four stories that you're going to talk about on the show ahead of time. And one of the ones that he sent me was an F-Stoppers article written by today's guest, Andy Day, and it immediately made me sit back and say, this guy knows how to write, and I really like how he describes his point of view, and I got him on the show. So, Andy Day, welcome to Behind the Shot. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Steve. It's an honor to be here. Uh, you know, when I read that article, and you said to me in the green room here that you found it and you you know which one it was it was something about making yeah. money as a photographer yeah it was five reasons you'll never earn good money as a photographer right as i was reading that article there were moments where i'm like yeah you know what he nailed it and there were moments where i was talking back to the computer because <laughs> of things that you said and in all those cases you had a way with with words that stuck with me to the point where when I see that you've got an article on F-Stoppers now, I read it every single time because of that. Let's talk about you a little bit and kind of how you got to there. You're originally based, obviously by your accent, you're not French, but you live in nope. France, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
And where are uh, you now? Uh, currently in Warsaw, in my mother-in-law's kitchen. Um, I'm dog-sitting while my wife and her, and her mother are trekking in the mountains. Okay, well, I hope that they're having fun while you're dog-sitting. I don't hear the dogs, which is actually... How, how many? Yeah, there's two of them. They're contained at the moment. So I've given they're them contained. treats and, uh, yeah, hoping no one knocks on the door. But it's 10 o'clock at night here, so uh, hopefully no one will. I appreciate your staying up so late, by the way. Absolutely. You are... While you're a writer, I want to talk about your photography because I think kind of the way that you write is colored a great deal by your photography. So if people came to you and found out that you're a photographer and you say to them, oh, yeah, I'm a photographer, I shoot. How do you describe your subject matter? I really don't enjoy describing the subject matter a lot of the time because as soon as I mention the word parkour, people think of kids doing backflips off the top of buildings and stuff. And that's... I mean, yeah, that I have photographed that, but um, uh, that's not really, I guess, the focus of what I want to photograph. I mean, I, I guess I photograph extreme sports, um, weird interactions with the city, architecture, uh, and the culture of, um, yeah, the culture of parkour, I guess. See, on your website, it says adventure sports, travel, architecture, and landscape. And while you do all of that, like the picture that we're going to talk about today, it has adventure sports, it has architecture in it in a way, it has landscape in it in a way. But what you do that I find so unique, and, and when people look through your website, andyday.com, when people look through your website, they'll see what I mean. You have an ability to combine four completely independent subject matters travel, architecture, landscape, and adventure sports or parkour in a way that's so unique. I, I want to read uh, a quote from your description on the website. Examines the body's relationship with the built world. I dig that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of um, what parkour is about. It's about discovering what your body can do in relation to the world around us. Um, so, I mean, it kind of goes beyond that as well. Parkour isn't this fixed thing. I mean, even the word itself is a bit stupid. You can't take it too seriously. Um, but, yeah, it's about discovering what you can do and discovering the world around you. And I kind of came to photography through parkour, and I came to parkour through photography. It's how I started photographing, like, 15, 16 years ago. Um, you do parkour so yourself? I started, and I still train a little bit. So, yeah, 15 years ago, I was jumping around and attending classes and training with guys. I mean, a lot of the guys that I train with are – they're, like, Olympic-level athletes. So it's not always fun – uh, I mean, it's always challenging. I always enjoy it. But training with guys who are at the top of their game, some of the best in the world, um, is, yeah, it's, it's tough at times. Uh, more recently, well, more recently, I guess about 12 years ago, I discovered climbing and I realized rock climbing. I discovered I could be average at climbing rather than terrible at parkour. So that's kind of where my life took me. So it kind of worked to my advantage a little bit because it kind of took me back away from parkour, but with the photography, I was still engaged with it. Um, so I, I have a bit of a distance from it, but I'm also immersed in it at the same time. One of the other things it said on your website, which again, there, some of the quotes on there are, are, are so perfect for describing what you photograph, the intentional misuse of architecture, right? Which is, which is kind of what parkour is. Oh, building, I see it as a walkway, right? 
You've been published in the Sunday Times, The Guardian, Men's Fitness. You're a senior writer, as I mentioned, for F Stoppers. And by the way, if people, if you have not checked out F Stoppers, go check it out and start with Andy's articles because <laughs> you'll kind of see what I mean. And when you when you take your point of view, right, and you mix that with your subject matter and your photography, you end up with some interesting clients. So I know about American Eagle, uh, Echo Unlimited, Canon. Any others that I that are big ones that I missed? Uh, I don't know how big uh, Jack Wolfskin is in the States. Okay, yeah. And I mean, Adidas bought one of my photographs like 15 years ago and put it on a billboard. That was kind of, I mean, I, I, I guess in, I hate saying I got lucky because I don't think many photographers do get lucky. I think you work and like make that luck happen a lot of the time. But I caught parkour just as it was growing at a time when no one else was really photographing it. So I had high quality images of guys doing stuff. And suddenly, you know, magazines and companies wanted to use them. Um, but yeah, I mean, American Eagle is probably the, the apogee so far. That was a really cool job. See, it's not a bad way to be discovered, though. You've been, <laughs> uh, you've got outlets such as you've been on Vice, you've been on Slate, you've been on Petapixel, and, and as I mentioned now, F-Stoppers. You've had multiple exhibitions. What I found interesting was... Because I'm sure that when you were studying, this was not what your teachers pictured. You have an you have a formal photography education. Well, kind of. I mean, so I have one and a half master's degrees in effect. So 15, 16 years ago, I was studying um, American literature and film. And that's when I discovered parkour and asked my tutor if I could write about it. And he was very interested in kind of... Um, abnormal practices in the city, you know, how we relate to urban space, how it, how we shape it, how it shapes us. So parkour was something that really appealed to him. And he said, yeah, go and investigate it. And then 2013, I, I mean, I never finished that degree. I kind of, I, I dropped out um, because I moved to London to work in TV and to photograph parkour. And then 2013, I thought, well, I, I still want to get a master's degree. So I enrolled at Goldsmiths in London. Uh, and this is, I mean, it's not a formal photography degree because it's in a sociology department. So they don't teach you and, you know, there's no printing techniques, there's no technical stuff, there's no lighting, there's no, um, you know, internships with magazines or, you know, or newspapers or anything like that. It is purely making you think and sending you out into the world to take those thought processes and try and create images as a result of them. See, and okay. That to me would almost be a better photography education, right? Yeah. How I mean, many times do we hear what we really capture is light? You need to go out in the world and learn how to see light. And in some cases, that's more important than the technicalities of how to operate the camera. I'm, I'm not before somebody, and it'll happen, before somebody hits me on social media and goes, Steve, you're wrong. Technicality on how you operate the camera matters. Okay, yeah, right. But then go look at some of the most iconic pictures of our day that are noisy or soft or blurry or tell the story by using motion, by dragging a shutter. You know, there's a lot of different ways to intentionally use that that technical correctness or, absolutely. or, or you know, non-correctness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, you know, the time, you know, the time I spent at Goldsmiths was probably, you know, it was, 
looking back, probably the best two years of my life. Uh, central London, surrounded by amazing tutors, incredible colleagues on the course as well. I was very privileged to, to study with some incredible photographers, you know, and made some really good friends there as well. Um, but, you know, with, uh, they have a pretty unique course there because um, it, it really is a provocation uh, and a means of making, really making you think and understanding how to think critically as well. I think that's the big thing. So let's, let's before we bring the shot up, I want to talk about the type of subject matter that you actually shoot for just a second, because shooting adventure sports and parkour and, and the, the, the type of work that you do brings unique challenges that you will have that I think a lot of normal sports photographers don't have that I think a lot of, you know, standard everyday photographers don't have. What are some of the unique challenges with photographing parkour and the like? Well, I think firstly, you have to understand movement. It, it helps me a great deal of having trained, having spent so much time around parkour athletes to understand what they want to do, what they can do, how they want to be represented, how to communicate with them. Let me and, interrupt you, know, you on that. Let me interrupt you on that. I apologize. But I have to ask this, that you said understanding the movement and you understand what they do. Did it matter that you also did it? I mean, could you have done this if you didn't or had never done parkour yourself? I, I don't think it's necessarily the physical capacity or the like uh, initiation that I went through, I guess, to immerse myself in parkour. It's about the people that I work with knowing that I have had or continue to have the same conversations physically. So they know that when they see a space, I can see it in a very similar way to them. So, you know, I haven't gotten into climbing. I've climbed a lot of buildings. Um, so they, you know, the guys that I work with primarily are interested in jumping around whereas I'm primarily interested in climbing up or across a building. So I, I have my own um, insight into what they do. So it's not so much that I have a, you know, I can do what they do at a smaller scale. It's that the people I collaborate with, and that's for me a really important part of it, uh, the collaboration, the people that I work with, they know that I know what they're doing and what they're putting themselves through, what they're risking, how they're risking it, how hard I can push them, how hard they want to push themselves. You just mentioned the word risk three times mm -hmm. and two times, three times, which then leads to that question. You understand their risk because you've you've been in those risky situations, but you're trying to document it. So how do you as the photographer deal with the safety side of things or do you leave that up to the subject completely to worry about their own safety? It's... It's down to them, but there is a conversation. Um, you know, I never put any pressure on someone uh, to do what they're doing. If they're invested in the photograph, it's because of what they bring to the shoot, not what I bring to the shoot. You know, there's never any pressure from me to, to do something that they wouldn't do if the camera wasn't there. I mean, yeah, of course, a lot of the time we're there because I've got a camera and they're wanting to capture it for themselves, but that's the thing. They're capturing it for themselves, not because of, you know, um, I don't know, there's, you know, the narcissism of it is a strange thing. Like you, the stuff you see on YouTube, the stuff that gets really, I guess, popularized, the mediatized, like the media version of parkour is so far divorced from the everyday lived experience of parkour. Um, and yeah, there's kind of always this 
disconnect between what you see and and what you actually experience on a day-to-day basis that, doing parkour. See, that right there sounds like that could be a conversation for a half an hour that I would love to yeah, have. Easily. And that is, what is that different perception between what you see on YouTube or American Ninja Warrior, for example, where a lot of those competitors who are some of the most amazing athletes that you will see and are finally getting that recognition of that, a lot of them are parkour people. A lot of them are, are rock climbers. Um, mm-hmm. But they're being presented in a reality TV scenario that clearly changes that dynamic. The picture we're going to talk about, which I'm going to bring up here in a sec, but I want to, I want to, there was something that you and I discussed in email that was intriguing to me. And I even asked you, let me clarify this before I do my intro. You know, is this a personal project? Cause I know the pictures were used in the end in a, in a commercial sense in some of them. But it is a long-term personal project, what we're going to talk about today. And I'm kind of curious, how do you, both as a photographer, an artist, a parkour, parkour person yourself, you know, a climber yourself, and a writer, right? How do you see personal photo projects from, from a life skill point of view? How do, how, how do those play out as important in our lives? I know it's deep. Give me the helicopter view of how you would describe why somebody should do a personal photo project. Um, I think like we're constantly learning. That's one of the things I've kind of discovered. I've been writing for F-Stoppers now for, I think, two years. And one of the things that I've really taken as value from doing that is realizing that I've got so much more to learn. And I think... Um, you know, I knew there was stuff I didn't know and I wanted to learn before, but, you know, taking that uh, job has really kind of made it clear how much more there is to discover. And I think personal projects are a way of evolving, a way of challenging yourself and um, giving you something to, to really embrace and immerse yourself in as well, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, All I mean, makes sense. The, the bottom line is though, you find it beneficial to you both as an artist and as a human, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't really think about it in such a detached way because I'm, you know, I, I guess it's the same for a lot of us. We're so immersed in what we do. We don't step back and think, oh, I'm going to do this personal project. Like something will come along, give you a reason to do it. And suddenly it's just like, okay, this is what I want to do. And you create a body of work. And you realize, oh, wow, okay, this is quite big and I can continue it and there's more to be done here. And it just kind of ticks over and ticks over. But still, what you're, what you're doing, I mean, there are people who do the, you know, 365 type thing, whether it be a selfie or, or the world around them. This is a multi-year project. Now, the shot I'm going to bring up here in just a second is from a project called Former. Mm-hmm. Before I show the shot, explain Former to, to us. Um, I mean, this is usually an hour-long presentation. It's really, and it's a shame we only, not a shame, it's frustrating in a way to be able to only show one photograph today because it has to be seen in the context of a whole body of work because these are monuments from former Yugoslavia. Uh, so it's a play on that uh, word. And it's also formation of memories, formation of identity as well. It's referring to those things. Um, but across uh, former Yugoslavia, there are, large number of monuments scattered across um, often quite remote places, and they have quite a conflicted status. They're referring back to the Second World War. They were built under the commun- kind of the communist regime of Marshal Tito, mostly during the 60s, 70s, and a few in the 80s. 
And already I want to stop talking because unless you kind of go into the detail and the politics, it's hard to make sweeping statements about them because they are so complicated. They're so internally contradictory as well. And they, they don't kind of manifest as a result of the kind of the, the problems between countries like Serbia and Croatia that have had, you know, differences for however long. Eons, yeah. But, but they, yeah, but they, um, they certainly play a role in that um, ongoing difficulty. So it, it's... So yeah, here's what again, people really need to do then. People need to go to andyday.com. We're going to d- dissect one shot today. Sure. But these projects that that Andy has shot in these these monuments that are you know usually in great disrepair in some cases where he is shooting people climbing them and jumping off of them or on them and you really do need to go see the flow and and the problem was we talked about this actually as we were setting up this show that's difficult to even communicate if I showed a lot of shots because then we can't dive down into the way that you think as a photographer sometimes but you really do need to see these in context and how these images in different areas flow together. So let's let's talk about this shot. And I'm going to start this sure. shot. Again, every episode I say it, I cannot <laughs> describe a photograph for the freaking life of me. But I'm going to try. So do your best. And and jump in and correct me where I screw up radically bad because it's going to happen. Sure. This is an old monument of white, what looks like concrete, and it's spread out. It's not what you think of as a monument, which is part of the reason I dug this shot, right? It's it's a picture this, if you would, for those of you on the audio feed. And what you can do if you're on the audio feed is go to behindtheshot.tv and find this episode, no matter when you're listening to it, find the episode and look through the show notes and you'll see the photograph in there along with a gallery of, of Andy's other work. But picture, if you will, it's like a TV narration, picture, if you will, a grassy hill with a nice, beautiful blue sky. Like, by the way, we don't get in Southern California with nice white clouds. And on this rolling hillside is in the distance a set of not just one, but a set, a rather large set of concrete items And in the foreground, you have two of them, with one of them actually bleeding out of the frame on the left, the other one kind of frame rule of thirds to center on the left, and a guy mid-air like a Michael Jordan type jump between the two with his shadow perfect on the one. That's, That's about as good as I can describe this. Anything you would add? No, I think you've done a, a really good job there. I mean, you, you've picked up on the fact that it's not just a monument, it's a it's a memorial complex. So there's a series of monuments here, all representing slightly different things. Um, but this is in Serbia. It's um, The monument is called Kadinjaca. Uh, it's about, I don't know, 10, 15 kilometers. What's that, about 8, 10 miles from yeah. a city called Užica. Um, and it's the scene of a battle that happened, I think, I think 1941, where the partisans resisting the Nazis went to intercept a Nazi battalion. And there was, I think there was 400 partisans and maybe 3000 Nazi troops. And, uh, 
they they got wiped out, but they held out long enough for Uzitsa, the city, to be evacuated. Um, and you know, a number of memorials were built across um, former Yugoslavia to commemorate the efforts of the partisan fighters. Um, and this is one of those monuments. And I guess, you know, this is a very sensitive site in some regards. Um, but, you know, this isn't the Lincoln Memorial. Um, it's, it plays a very different role. And I should emphasize that the guy jumping there, this is what's really crucial. Who is so jumping? What's, what's the guy's name this, this that's jumping? A, Let's give him his credit. Boki, Bogdan Svetkovic. Um, and he's a parkour practitioner who lives not far from there. We drove from his family home uh, to reach this site. And this is the important thing is that these are Serbian practitioners and Croatian practitioners and Macedonian parkour athletes taking part in these photographs. And they're creating their own narratives at these complex, contradictory, like difficult locations. And monuments, these monuments, you know, like I say, it's not like the Lincoln Memorial. It's not like the Cenotaph in London. They are sensitive, but um, they play a slightly different role. Uh, and their meanings become lost and kind of confused and difficult. You know, they're loved, hated, they're celebrated, they're falling apart, they're repainted, they're kept clean. Some are illuminated at night, some are covered in graffiti. Every single one is unique, both in its state of repair, but also in its form as well. And what you don't see in this photograph is this huge uh, kind of uh, concrete block with a almost like a bullet hole in the middle of it you know, splitting this block in two and that's in the background you see it kind of in profile you kind of see it side on uh in this photograph uh so it's there but not there uh what's the guy's name again this is Boki bogdan svetkovic okay so people can look him up at least yeah. what what is let's let's start with the technical end what what is your exposure here so uh, I have my notes here, F5.6, uh, 1 800th of a second at ISO 500. And it's shot on a lens that I use for 90, 95% of my work, which is my 16 to 35 um, uh, F2.8 L series. I think it's the, yeah, it would have been the Mark II in 2015. So you're a Canon shooter, obviously. Have. Then what body would this have been? This is the 6D classic. Uh, so no fast no no fast frame rates here. This is a single capture. Well, and I'm oh, this was not a burst. No. Nope. Interesting. Okay. So what was the shutter speed again? This is one eight hundredth of a second, which is probably a little bit slower than it could have been. Uh, I usually push it past a thousand to be safe, but so uh, the the movement is actually quite slow, although it does look dynamic. He's not actually moving that quickly. Well, hopefully he's moving quick enough that he made it to the other side. <laughs> yeah, he did. This type of shot, there's there's so many ways I want to go with this discussion here, but this type of shot, you have to be aware of the spatial relationship of the separate pieces of this monument from a compositional point of view, but also from a point of view of when he gets in the air, you, you don't know it until he gets in the air necessarily, but when he gets in the air, he's going to cause this beautiful shadow, right? So how do you approach positioning yourself to make sure that you get the right angle to have the climber lit, the athlete lit, but also think about things like the shadows and the monument being lit in a complementary way? How do you approach that, that positioning aspect? I mean, 
I, I wouldn't say it gets a huge amount of thought. We, we actually tried this shot in a slightly different location, um, but the, the body shape wasn't quite right, the, the light wasn't quite right, and the monument wasn't in the background. So we actually just moved one block along, which, and, it, and it kind of curves around uh, this series of blocks. I forget how, exactly how many there are of them, but we tried it in a different location. And then the, the shadow is pure luck, uh, I guess. Uh, but you, I mean, I get a lot of shadows that prove to be quite lucky on a lot of occasions. So I guess, you know, going back to making your own luck. Uh, yeah, it, because it the shadow go, okay, here that works. For, for, there's one thing I missed when I described it, and that is the shadow here. There's a solid line shadow at the bottom of that primary. I'm going to call it primary for lack of a better phrase. The primary structure that's that's in the frame. Him jumping created a shadow where his foot is literally on top of that level shadow as though it's a separate person. It adds depth, it adds complexity. I also love the balance that you do with the other structures. So those structures that are in the back, and there's a lot of them, they look yeah. pretty far away. On a 16 to yeah, 35, I mean, the, they may not. Yeah, the, the wide angle lens will, will send them to, you know, pretty far back. But I mean, what, you know, I, I teach uh, parkour photography workshops. Uh, I do a couple of years. One of the first things that we run through is how to frame your subjects. And the, the golden rule is you frame your movement according to the architecture. You're not tracking a subject. You're not, you know, moving with the body. You're looking at the architect architectural space, framing accordingly, and then putting the body. The body's almost incidental. So, you know, I tell people, like, if you take the body out of that photograph, does the shot still work? Yeah, it might not be very interesting, right. but does it give you a sense of balance? Does it give you a sense of like geometry? Is it clean? Is it is it still you know, it still has to be impression? the canvas has to be right. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, you know, so parkour is about a you know, parkour is not about the person. It's about the person and the space. So you can't have one without the other. If it was just about the person, I'd be photographing dance in a studio. That's not what it's about. It's about where it happens. It's about that interaction with with the environment. The, the relationship. Uh, I, I do this with every guest. I go looking through their portfolio, which yours I got lost in for a while. I go looking through the portfolio to see the, the similarities and common traits of their photos. And it could be your subject matter. It could be choice. It's probably a little of both. But you have a very common use of, you know, what in printing they call white space, but you have a very common use of negative space. So you have a large portion of sky, but it's got those things in the background, right? And there's a lot of, which is a, a compositional tool, by the way, triangles and geometry that you use that I absolutely love. This was actually, a, this was used commercially, wasn't it? Kind of, yeah. I mean, so, well, no, so the project has kind of fallen into two halves so far. So there's the stuff I shot in 2015, which involved three trips to Croatia and Serbia. And then there's a second part to it, which was shot in 2017, uh, which was supported by a tiny Serbian clothing company. Um, so we went on a, I think it was about a five or six day road trip. I think, no, it was more than that. And I think at that time, I think I slept in a different country for eight consecutive nights, which is what you can do when you visit the Balkans. You don't have to drive far to be in a different country. Um, and Scott Chipsticks is this tiny uh, clothing label uh, run by uh, someone who's now a very good friend of mine. 
And um, so they supported the project and they're not using these photographs. Uh, he's not using these photographs to sell products. It's all, but I guess in a way he is, but you know, it's not, um, he was not taking these photographs and slapping his logo on it and saying, buy my T-shirts. It was about creating content for his website, but also an opportunity for him to tell the story about the monuments because he's from Serbia. He lives in Croatia. He lives about as far from uh, Serbia as you can get as a Croatian. I think at the age of eight, he was bundled into the back of a lorry one night and driven to Serbia, which he'd never been to before because the war kicked off. Um, so these monuments and the relationship between the Serbian and parkour, uh, Serbian and Croatian parkour communities are very, very personal to him. So for him, it was an opportunity to invest in something that meant a lot to him, a lot to his company and a lot to his family history as well. So when people, okay, so when people come to you to use this type of artwork in a clothing campaign or a magazine or something like that, do they come to you with a concept or do they just come to you and say, do something <laughs> we we you know you're the one with the vision and i have no idea what you're photographing go do something which would be unusual in a commercial and you know shoot well i mean i guess each job uh, varies i mean th these images are not available commercially you couldn't you know i don't I upload very little of my parkour stuff to stock libraries generally and if a company approached me and said we want to use this to sell something the answer unfortunately would be no um, my other work is available, uh, and when I get commissioned by you know someone like Jack Wolfskin that I shot for last year, they had a specific idea. They know my portfolio. They send me tear sheets. Uh, we discuss in depth. We have meetings about what they want to capture. We talk about you know what else they can pick up from that day. So you know I'm going to turn up with my 16 to 35 lens, but obviously they want some details. They want some more casual stuff as well. So they need to check what else uh, we can get out of the day, um, and. Again, I mean, a lot of it just depends very much on the location uh, and the athlete as well. Not to say that the athletes don't bring their own unique flavor to each shoot. Of course they do. But uh, yeah, the, the, the location is, is often, often one of the biggest determining factors. Well, and, and I love that you, in looking through your portfolio, you have male climbers and, and parkour artists and you have female uh, climbers and parkour artists. And there's a variety of body shapes and styles and sizes but it still leads the one thing. And that was that shutter speed that you said was a little slow. Obviously most of your work is so sharp for this type of photography that it amazes me. Do you have a preferred minimum shutter speed, minimum F stop? Um, I mean, I typically shoot at around about F5, F5.6, um, just because something's moving and you know, at 16 millimeters, a lot of it's going to be in focus, but with a more architectural style, I like to have everything sharp front to back, and f5.6 is kind of where I compromise. Sometimes that'll change, um, but again, you know, I'm pre-focusing, um, so you kind okay, of got to trust. Okay, so you are pre-focusing. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this gets quite complicated. Sometimes you have to get people to stand in. You have to choose something in the scene that's kind of the right distance and, and kind of guess from that. So shallow depth of field isn't something I go for too often. Um, but yeah, thousandths of a second and above is generally what you aim for. And then, of course, this, you know, like, like I say, when I'm teaching, every photograph is a compromise. I mean, ideally, I'd be out there with a the 10 the, by 8. That is photography, yeah. the art of compromise. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, people say, oh, my photograph's going to have lots of noise shooting at such high ISOs because you, you, you end up shooting at you know, 3,200 ISOs. Like, well, yeah, it's either you have the noise or it's going to be blurry. 
so you, you make your compromise and, and you choose. Well, see, in that, I'm a, I'm a live music shooter, so I live at 3200. Oh, well, yeah, you know and, <laughs> and so many people are, oh, I'm looking at my picture in Lightroom and it's noisy. And again, I've said this a million times. So for those of you watching or listening that have heard it before, my apologies, but I'm going to say it again. Some of the most iconic pictures of our day are noisy. Sonny, uh, Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston, the old Vietnam War photos, some, any live music photo from the 70s or 60s, right? These are all noisy pictures. And so what, right? A, a sharp, noisy shot is always preferable over a clean, blurry shot. And as my buddy Rick Salmon says, or his dad said to him once, and I'm going to paraphrase it here, but if people notice the noise in your shot, then there's something else wrong with your shot. It's or it's not the most interesting shot to begin with. Because if your shot tells the right story, that's a secondary thing that people are going to notice. But adding light obviously can fix that and I'm kind of curious, most of your shots appear to be 100% natural light. Do you ever add light? Yeah, I mean I shot a job uh not too long ago. I'm just in the middle of editing it editing it at the moment. It was shot in Denmark at the largest indoor and outdoor parkour training facility in the world. It's like this, this, it's the size of a football pitch and it's half indoor inside this school and half outdoor. And the architects and the designers of it wanted me to capture parkour action there. And of course it's all dark, you know, it's, it's, it's concrete walls and, and a big old ceiling. So yeah, that's, it gets, it becomes really hard work. It slows down the process a lot. The athletes get a little bit bored sometimes as you're trying to fix stuff. And what do you use lighting-wise when you do that? Uh, for that one, I was on a. I mean, I had to change my plan, so I went along with a pair of um, Pro Photo. Uh, it's the the biggest wireless one you can get. Is it the B one or the B two? I think the, it's the, B1, the B one. I think I, I forget. Yeah, yeah okay. B one. And my plan was to um, shoot a plate. Uh, well, to shoot the athlete, uh, sorry, start again, camera on a tripod, shoot the athlete with the light and then walk around and pop the entire scene, uh, oh. so that I could blend like 10 photographs in post afterwards. And I got there and I looked, the, looked at the size of this space. I was like, oh, this, <laughs> this is not going to work because, you know, it's a small client, low budget. You've got one day, we had about five, six hours in which to shoot and instead of, illuminating the whole scene. I basically lit the athletes and then shot an ambient light plate. So um, trying to blend those together in Photoshop afterwards is, it's been my challenge of the last couple of days, actually. Uh, it's not something I do very often. And of course the amb ambient light varies from different corners of the, of this enormous room. Um, so yeah, I mean, so yeah, it, 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 to answer your question, yes, I do shoot with lights when the when I need to. But for this project and for most of my projects, you've got to be fast and light, and you know, carrying you know light stands and battery packs right. and all the rest, it slows you down. You know, I, very often I'm in places where I'm not necessarily supposed to be. Um, so well, you're doing up. the you're doing the photography equivalent of of free climbing, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're walking into a space, making it happen and getting out of the space. This this picture, one thing I mentioned when I described this picture, by the way, is that one of the structures is in the far upper left corner bleeding out of the frame. So I want to talk composition for a minute, because to me, mm -hmm. that is absolutely perfect. There's a 
there's a well-known, I don't want to call it a rule, but we'll call it a rule, right? There's a well-known rule in composition. We all know rule of thirds. Well, you've got the one structure kind of coming from the top rule of third down to the left lower rule of third. The large structure in the middle is kind of towards a rule of third as is the jumper. But there's also another rule of leaving nose room, as they call it, for somebody. So generally, if you're doing a person in a landscape orientation photograph or even portrait, they tend to sit heavy to the side of the frame where their face is not face facing. So the back of their right. head would be to the closest side of the frame and there's more room in front of them. And the concept behind that is giving them room to move into, right? Yeah. This is the perfect example of when to break that rule. And the jumper is actually on the far left of the frame, jumping to the item that is bleeding out of the frame, making you wonder what's over there, right? Where are they going? This is the perfect example of that. When, when you were photographing this, did you have this, I'm assuming you cropped this in post actually, did you have this composition and frame in mind of it bleeding? Um, I don't think so. I mean, again, not a lot of conscious thought goes into the composition. And, you know, we shot this one shot, maybe we shot in one location, like the, the as I mentioned, the next block along, maybe took two shots there and it didn't work. And I think part of the skill is knowing when to push at something to try and make it work and when to walk away from something because you need right, to go and do other point. stuff because you, yeah. Um, and here, I guess like the, you know, the, the structure lends itself to, to the direction that he's moving in and to be able to show the rest of the monument, the stuff that's, you know, kind of lost in the grass a little bit at the back and the right of the frame. So, yeah, I mean, the, Again, I, like I said, I don't think there's a lot of conscious thought that goes into the into the composition. Well, but um, still, you're going out midday. What mm -hmm. if you go out to a location and it's just crazy harsh light? Do you shoot anyway, and and you utilize that harsh light to make a sh a, a shot that that tells that story? Yeah, I mean, when you're, uh, you know, the, our schedule for this shoot was crazy. I mean, we were. In the I was in the country for four days and we visited 12 locations, maybe more. So trying to get from one to the next was most of the day. And you get to a location and you see it as you're driving in and you're kind of like, what the hell is that? And you get there and this kind of like um, strange sensation of being there. It's a very bizarre experience arriving at one of these structures for the first time because it's so unlikely it's so otherworldly in some respects it's so unexpected and you feel kind of a sense of glee of having of, right. for being there um and you've got all of this going on at the same time you've got to go right I, I need to stop just staring at this and we're supposed to be here to take some photographs um but you don't really separate the glee aspect of it from you don't switch that off you know, it's all part of the process that you, you go there and you don't go from one mode to another. You kind of, the, the, the camera is almost like a, an appendage, like a part of the exploration process. It kind of, it's why you're there, but it's not like, um, how to describe this. It's shaping what you see um, and how you see it. Um, but it doesn't feel like that's the, you know, the be all and end all. It's not like the the thing that has to be done there. So but occasionally you're just like, no, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say the occasionally you just have to go, okay, I need to stop looking and we need to start taking some photographs. See, and I've, um, I've had that scenario actually in, in music photography where I'm sure I'm watching a band. Well, Seinfeld actually was a good example. And he's, a, you know, comedy. I almost forgot to take pictures yeah, because I'm sitting there enjoying the show. And that, that happens with me bands now and then too. What is, what's your software of choice? Are you a Lightroom user or a Photoshop user? Yeah, Lightroom. I try to avoid Photoshop as much as possible just because it slows down so much. Uh, there's not a huge amount of editing that goes on. Um, really? And yeah, I mean, I had friends who looked at this and said, oh, you want to clean up the, the monument and like remove all of the bits of dirt and everything. And I was like, no, I want to, I want to, you know, that monument is real. It has so, a presence. So, it's, it's so that's there. a good point though. You're shooting these things, but mm. you're also treating them almost photojournalistically. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the project is in a part, like, you know, the practitioners in Serbia and Croatia do go to these locations and they do jump on them. Not very often, but they are great places to explore. So yes, I'm going there and creating this kind of intervention, this kind of scene, but at the same time, I'm documenting something that happens and I'm documenting the monuments. The monuments have so many stories to tell and we're kind of adding to that. So to edit them and make them something that they're not is, it isn't really what the project is about. I, I, I totally get that. And, and I actually think that's how it should be for, for the type of subject that you're shooting. So I want to talk about a couple of things here as we close. First of mm -hmm. all, I love this shot and I love your Thank work. You. And people That's need to go kind. see more of your work in context, right? So before we get into giving out your links, which if if you're listening or watching and you, if you're watching on video, by the way, you're getting lower thirds popping up Andy's links to all of his social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and his portfolio. If you're listening to the audio version, we have not said them yet, but we will, we'll, we'll say them out loud so you can write them down here in just a second. If there was one photographer of any genre that you would recommend that people go look up and, and follow, who would that be? Oh, wow. That's a, a really hard question. And I think it'd probably be, there's one guy's quote, and he's a magnum photographer, it's David Allen Harvey, and he had this great quote, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember it exactly, but um, he talks about how these, all these guys, these, poet, these guys with poetry in their heads, uh, with all, you know, with all these stories to tell and great ideas, but the really creative people are the ones who get off their asses and actually nail the board to the wall. So I would say go and check out David Allen Harvey uh, and see what he has to say about his work, not just his images as well. Perfect choice. Perfect choice. So let's talk about your links for just a second. Your actual website slash portfolio is where? AndyDay.com. Okay. You're also on all social medias. So let's first of all talk, what's your Facebook page? I've got it down as Andy Day Photography, is that correct? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not as active as it should be. Uh, a few people find me there as a result of F-Stoppers linking to it when they publish one of my articles on their uh, uh, Facebook page. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not, probably not as active as it should be. Okay, so now the um, last two. I want to talk about Twitter yeah. and I want to talk about Instagram. Because Twitter is a, is a username that I'm still trying to figure out. What are you on Twitter? This is, I mean, I say it as Kiel. You might pronounce it as Kiel. It's K-I-E-L-L. -L. And this goes back to, so I started in, in, 
you know, I discovered the parkour community at a time when Facebook didn't exist. There was no Twitter. It, no one used their real names on the internet. Everyone used nicknames. And this was just a random nickname I think I'd been using since my first AOL account back in 1995. So it's, okay. a, it's a word that exists in the mind of a, of a teenage boy living in Sutton Coldfield in England that just randomly got typed into the internet. Um, and it's I did kind the of same stuck. thing. So a lot of I did the same thing for years. I was Raz too, which has been my nickname. I go by Raz on the radio and I used it for years. And when I started doing photography and wanted to switch to my real name, it actually was difficult at times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had that transition. If you, you know, I still have my kiel.com website, K-I-E-L-L.com. And that's kind of acting as a out of date archive now, I guess it's, uh, uh, I try and just chuck everything up there, all the little jobs and little events and projects that I do. Uh, but it's a little bit out of date. What I would urge people to go and have a look at is blog.andyday.com because if you want to learn about the monuments, um, I've got, yeah, I've got nine articles there that explain the entire process. If you click on any one of them and scroll down, I think to the bottom might also be at the top. They're in order. There's a series of links. You can start with the first one and go all the way through to number nine. They're only like 800 words each, but you know, these are incredible pieces of history that are often being lost um, they are. They need the eyes of the world on them because of the kind of nationalist tensions that bubble up in that region occasionally. And having the attention of the world directed there might be uh, an aid to resolving those situations. Um, and yeah, there's obviously more photographs there as well. Perfect. And the one that we did not mention was your Instagram is Kiel Graham. So K I E L Graham. So I. Yeah, another boring story there, but I'll spare you. But yeah, K-I-E-L-L, Graham. Don't ask Perfect. why. All right, so here's the deal. First of all, Andy, thank you so much for doing this. this. Been amazing. Thank you and so I much. will watch your stuff on F-Stoppers. And uh, if people have not seen you on F-Stoppers, they need to go search for you on F-Stoppers. That's kind. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. So to everybody that's watching or listening, a couple of quick things. First of all, you need to check out Andy. And again, it's andyday.com. And if you didn't catch all the social media stuff, Make sure that you go to the website because he's got links to all of his social media there too. And then, of course, there's also blog.andyday.com. Check that out too. Remember that we've still got the Red River Paper Contest going. That goes through the end of August. You've got a chance at one of 10 Red River Paper sample packs. I've got some sitting here next to me that I did in the last episode where I reviewed this printer behind me. And it's really easy to enter. All the rules are up at behindtheshot.tv. Top menu, click contests. You'll see the Red River Paper Contest. And I've got all the links you need to make it easy for you to enter there. One of those 10 winners is also going to win a custom 13 by 19 print of Cheney Orr's photo from the July 4th episode, which is a great uh, episode where he took a picture out in front of the Lincoln Memorial, actually. Uh, great kind of photojournalistic black and white shot that I absolutely dig. So make sure that you do that. You can follow me all over the place, right? Of course, website-wise, it's stevebrazel.com. It's like Brazil, but two L's. Of course, the podcast is behindtheshot.tv. If you want to follow me on Facebook, I've got a dedicated page on Facebook for the podcast. It's Behind the Shot Podcast or Steve Brazel Photography. And then for Instagram or Twitter, it's the same for both. And that is Steve Brazel or Behind the Shot TV. You can hit me up on both of those. Reach out to me. Tell me what you like, what you dislike. I love all the feedback. Thanks to everybody for watching. And thanks again to my guest, Andy Day, for this episode. Uh, This is Behind the Shot, where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. We'll see you on the next show. 